But let's stand and hear the word of God this morning. Isaiah 66, first 11 verses. Now hear God's word. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. He who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, say, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. This is the very word of God. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word. You are so gracious. You are so good to us, Father, to give us these words. They are but words on page, but they are power, they are spirit, they are life for us. As you bring these words to us and embed them into the very soul. God, we pray, your spirit, to enable us this day to understand that these words would live out through us and transform us today. We pray this, O God, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we come back to Faith 101 this morning. It's important for us to know the truth. Very important for life to know truth. Children, if your friend told you it's okay to go out onto an icy lake, walk out onto the icy lake, it will hold you. They told you that, yet you come to find out that the ice is only one inch thick and you fall through the ice, you would drown, you would die. How important is it to have the truth? Children, if your friend told you, the ice will hold you, but it doesn't. Children, how important is it to know the truth? Very important, isn't it? If your friend lies to you and you fall through the ice, what happens to you? 
you will die. Children, you must know the truth. There are many lies in this world, but you must know the truth. And God's word is truth. So hear God's word this morning, children. There are many demons in this universe that have manufactured a lot of gods in their minds. And people believe these lies, and they are such fundamental lies. But the most important question, the most basic question for us this morning is, is who is God? Who is God? That's the most important question. We come back to the basic question. Who is God? Before we get to God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which, by the way, is the first statement made by some evangelistic organizations. So you start with that. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But what does that mean? Who is God? The problem is that Americans don't know who God is. That's the problem. Who is God? We must begin there. Don't, don't, don't you think that makes sense? That would be the obvious question most people would ask. At least an honest person would say, who is God? You tell me that God loves me, but who is God? That's, that's a critical question. Who is this God you speak of? What does the book of Hebrews say about God? God is your buddy. Is that what it says in the book of Hebrews? God is your buddy. No, it says God is a living fire. God is a consuming fire, which means that God is holy. God is love, that's true. But what it means when we say God is love is that God so loved the world that he sent his son to be killed. That's the part that they forget. God so loved the world. That's the verse everybody loves, right? John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his son to be killed. Why don't they just say that? Why don't, why don't people receive the truth? See, they curtail it. They don't want to hear the whole story. They don't want to know that God's wrath burns against sin. And that's why God had to put his son up for a sacrifice for our sins. That's it. You see, there's this curtailed view of God. Merciful and mighty, yes. It's, it's a mighty, it's a merciful mightiness and a mighty mercy. It's, it's, we got to bring them together, not to separate them, but to see who God is is, is in, a, in a full and in a, in a accurate way as the Word of God brings it out to us. There's so many idolatrous people in America who have made gods for themselves. And they say, I don't want to think about God as a God of wrath. I want to think of God as a God of love. And so when we come and say, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he sent his son to be killed, to be crucified on a cross. They reject it. Out and out, they reject it. Why? Because they've made a God in their own image, in their own minds. They're pretending a religion. They haven't received God for who he is. So the most basic answer to the question, who is God, is presented here in this passage. And that is this, God is God. 
God is God. That's so basic. When Vince Lombardi stepped out into the training camp in 1961, he held up the football, and what did he say? Probably the most famous, iconic quote in all of sports history. What did he say? Gentlemen, this is a football. Was it to be taken as an insult? These guys were pro football players. No, every day we need to come back to the basics. Every day before you pray to God, before we start the sermon, before we glibly start throwing out our typical cliches and phrases that we're so used to saying, what we need to do is hold up this word and say what? God is God. God is God. So we start there this morning, and that's where God starts with the fundamentals, verses 1 and 2 of our passage this morning. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all these things exist, says the Lord. God puts things in perspective for us. Two things about God. The first is that God is God. God is God. God is on the throne, which means what? God is sovereign. Children, God is sovereign in your notes. You can write that out. Sovereign. God is the one who reigns. Sov, S-O-V, reign. God reigns over all. This is what you need to know to be a Christian. You need to know there is a God. You need to believe in God. Do you believe in this God? He reigns. He's over all. He's far above on the throne. And earth is his footstool. It means he rests his feet on the neck of Joe Biden. And that Chinese premier guy. He rests his feet on the neck of Joe Biden. Joe Biden is nothing. The kingdoms of the earth, nothing. Compared to God, God is sovereign. God is over all. God reigns. God rules. He is way above all of us. Here's an ant that lives on my back 20 acres. He has little control over my life. A spider walked across our basement this week. I smashed him under my tennis shoe. Why? Because I have control of the spider. Not absolute control. I don't have absolute control over a spider. Black widow might creep up on me at night and give me a little sting and then I'm in the hospital the next day. I don't have total control over every spider, but God is in absolute control over this whole world. Everything. Every part of it. Over every part of my life and your life. Every negative thing that's happened in your life, God ordains that for you. God has planned that for you. God is sovereign over your life. It's the first thing we need to know is that God is God. God is on the throne. We, this earth, is his footstool. And then the second thing is that God speaks. So the two things that are most basic that everybody needs to know, and we go over this every day, this is the football, this is the basics. God is God and God speaks. God speaks to us. He speaks to you and me. He has a word for you. He approaches you with a word. What does that mean? 
Well, the first thing it means, when God speaks, don't interrupt Him. And take the fingers out of your ears. Okay, if a a father is speaking to his 13-year-old son, and the son has his fingers in his ears, metaphorically or any other way, what's the problem with that, children? The father is earnestly speaking to a 13-year-old son. And the son has his fingers in his ears. What's the problem with that? Children, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that boy? What's his problem? He's not listening, but why isn't he listening? Why does he have his fingers in his ear while his father leans forward and says something to him? Why why does he have his fingers in his ears? Because he's in rebellion against his father. And so when God speaks, the first thing we have to do is, is take the fingers out of our ears and know that God's word is relevant to us. And amidst the cacophony of voices and the busyness of life, realize that God is speaking to you and you're not speaking to you and the world's not speaking to you and the devil's not speaking to you. The, the, the word is coming from God to you. And his word is for you. And we'll get to that in just a moment. A little bit more on that in just a moment. But what is the message from God? What matters to God in the passage this morning? Well, four things that matter to God as he speaks. First comes in verse 2. At the end of verse 2, on this one will I look, upon this person I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. This is what we, we are. This is us. This defines the believer. This is the first word out of Jesus' mouth, too. This, these are so, so basic. These are the basics that come at the end of the prophet Isaiah's message. It's the first word out of Jesus' mouth in his instruction to his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. The last word that Martin Luther uh, conveyed to others before he died. Blessed are the beggars. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is it. The, these are the members of the kingdom of God. This is what God's looking for. This, this is the members of the church of Jesus Christ. This is the very definition of who we are. This is it. This is the, who is God? We said God is sovereign. We said that. But secondly, who are we? And this answers the question who we are. We are the beggars. We, we are the humbled. We are the crippled ones. The word contrite is a word for crippled. We are the crippled ones. We are the humbled ones. We are the ones who are sensitive to our smallness and God's bigness. Children, God is very, very big, and we are very, very small. We come to God, God draws near to us. As we draw near to Him, as as we are poor and we are contrite and we are humble, and we tremble at His word, God receives us. God is there with us. So what is this trembling at His word? Let's... Let's talk about this just for a moment. Uh, This is what God wants. He wants us to tremble at at his word. What in the world is trembling? What what does the word trembling mean? The word tremble means to tremble. Like this. To shake. King Josiah heard the words of the lost book of the law. Remember, he tore his clothes. He was 
it was just a dramatic sense of God speaking and he heard and, and his response was to humble himself and to, to realize, of course, the fact that we have come very, very short of God's glory and God's will for us. And Josiah realized that and initiated that national repentance, remember. But this is so far away from the American experience. Uh, we've discussed this before, but the biggest drawback with the coffee bar in the lobby of the modern church, that if anybody trembles in the worship service, they might spill their latte on the nice carpet. Uh, th- these are the problems with a modern church. These are the first world church issues that we deal with. Is there is so much focus in upon man, and there's so much focus in upon my needs. There's so much focus upon my comfort, but, but not really a reception of the Word of God. And they're not trembling before the Word of God, and they don't even want to. But sometimes people do tremble. I know it's very far away from the American experience, but, but I saw people tremble when the Syrian earthquake came about, and it seemed that people trembled when the earth shook. The earth shakes, and people tremble. And sometimes they tremble afterwards. Oftentimes there are aftershakes, and then they'll tremble again with the other earthquakes that come afterwards, and then even as they're cleaning up 50,000 dead bodies, and they walk around the towers that have crumbled by the powerful hand of God upon them, people tremble. People really do tremble. Not in America, but they do in other countries. We've seen it, especially with earthquakes. People know how to tremble. But why? Do the Syrians and the Turks tremble with the earthquake? Why? Because they've awakened to reality. They've they've woken up to, to, to reality, to something real. They've come to realize that this is real. There's something highly significant going on that 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 has to do with life and death. Heaven and hell, eternal issues are at stake. And these people are woke to it. They're awakened up to the fundamental issues of life. The reality of of God, the reality of God's judgment at times, the reality of of our sin, the reality of hellfire. They wake up to it. They wake up to the truthfulness of God's word. Maybe you're sleepwalking, then you wake up and realize you're standing on a 50,000-foot precipice. You're, you're literally two inches away from that precipice. You were sleepwalking all the way to the edge, and then you woke up, and you woke up to your reality, and then you trembled. That's trembling. That's trembling at the truth of God's Word, reality of God communicating to us in his word. God speaks. How do we respond? There's only two ways, either to lean forward or to lean backwards. It's either way. As I see it, there's nothing more repulsive than the intellectualization of the message. Turning his word into a university lecture. Terrible. Or the sentimentalization of the message, which is what American religiosity did in the 19th century, and then on in the 20th century, especially in hymnody. Reducing the message to shallow cliches, 
glib over familiar informalities. You see, the devil wants us to preach like it's no big deal. Like it's not that serious. The last thing he wants are people in this room taking the message dead seriously. That's the last thing the devil wants. All these demonic attempts to cheapen the message. God, take this religious talk and burn it on hell. Anything that reduces our likeness to tr- not tremble at the message. Anything that reduces our likeliness not to tremble at the message of God's word, may that burn in hell. That's what I say. Because God's word is truth. Because God means it. Now, you say, what about the cross of Jesus Christ? And yes, this, I believe, is where we tremble. More than anywhere else. This is where we rejoice with trembling. The passage will come to rejoicing. Remember, we're at trembling, we're going to rejoicing. Okay, that's, that's where we're headed today. So let's begin with trembling. Let's move on to rejoicing. But we rejoice with trembling. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son up to what? Up to torture and to wrath and to crucifixion and death the naked, writhing body of his beloved son on the cross. Why? For you and me. Out of sheer love for us. And that's where we tremble. Right there. To encounter that love. Tremble, brothers and sisters. Tremble there. If you tremble anywhere with rejoicing at the cross, that could have been you, but it's not you. He took our place. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen, hallelujah. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, these things make me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Amen. Is anybody else trembling at the cross this morning? Even an atheist would say, if this is true, you've got to tremble. If you believe it to be true, the only approach, the only right response to it would be to rejoice with trembling. And if a Christian can't tremble there, there's no hope for him to tremble before the Word of God. So why do we tremble? Four reasons. Very, very quickly. Number one, the Word is authoritative. God speaks through the thunder. God speaks and universes hop into existence. That's, that's worth paying attention to. God speaks. Jesus speaks. Lazarus, come forth. The dead, they rise, they walk. That's authority. That's amazing. Wow. Wow. The words, secondly, speaks to the ultimate issues of our lives. For here and for eternity. You knew that your very life in eternity while hanging upon the words that we're reading in Isaiah 66 or John 3.16. If you, if you knew that your life, not just for the next day, depended on what you're hearing right now for eternity, man, you would you'd pay attention to it. 
Thirdly, the word is personal. God speaks through his word. But it's not an impersonal legal code like Joe Biden speaks to us through the Federal Register of Laws. No, no, no. God speaks to you personally. Speaks to you personally. And then fourthly, the word is covenantal or contractual, imposes responsibility on the listeners. Once you've heard the word, now you have to do something with it. You, you, if, if you don't, you're in trouble. The word, the word is a double-edged sword, absolutely. If you resist the word, if, if you're backing away from the word, if you're not interested in the word, the word will come after you in a judging way. But as you embrace it, as you lean in, as you believe it, trust it, respond to it, God blesses that. Luke 12, 47, our Lord says, The servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed these things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. Few, For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4. Here God speaks of the fake religiosity going on. At that time, with the people of God, he who kills a bull is as if he slays a man, he who sacrifices a lamb in the worship as if he breaks a dog's neck, he who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood, he who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways, their soul delights in their abomination, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes." And chose that in which I do not delight. That's precisely what Isaiah brought out in the first chapter. He's getting back to the first chapter. God is the first chapter of Isaiah. said, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul haste. They, they are trouble to me. I'm weary of hearing about them. When you spread out your hands in, in the worship, I, I hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are so full of blood. That's the very same thing here. And yet the thing that God is upset about is what? Well, they've got the singing, the tithing, the praising, the prayers, etc. But they're not listening to the sermon. They're not hearing his word. They're not answering when he calls. He says, forget all the rest. They're not listening to the sermon. So the religious worship is faked. And God finds it abhorrent. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Because they're not listening to the word. The response to the word is everything. The response to his call. He's pressing on you this morning. Are you hearing his call? Are you hearing his word? He's calling you to repentance, to sanctification, to love him, to tremble at his word. Are you resisting any of that so far this morning? Or are you saying, yes, this is for me. I I receive this. Yes, amen. Amen, God. I am of humble and contrite spirit, and I tremble at your word. Amen, God. That's me. God's calling you to this. Are you hearing his call? He's calling you to the cross to believe in him, to trust in him. Can you hear him calling? Secondly, God wants those who tremble at his word. But secondly, God wants justice against those who hate the church. 
Verses 5 and 6, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, and said, oh, let the Lord be glorified. They shall be ashamed. The sound of noise in the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord fully repays his enemies. And there is such attack on the church today. Come together as evangelical pastors in this valley, and you hear the the point all the time, people leave the church, they attack the church, they cut down the church. People have come here from Calvary Chapel. Cutting down Calvary Chapel, we leave. We tell them to leave. You go back to Calvary Chapel. People have come in here and cutting down a Reformed Baptist church in Colorado Springs. We say, no, no, you can't come here. You go back to that church. You can't come into this church and slander the church of Jesus Christ. We don't receive that. We will not receive it. We send them back. That's what we do. And I trust other Bible-believing churches are doing the very same thing. Oh, no. 1 Corinthians 3 is very clear. You slander, you defile the church of God. God will destroy you. He will destroy you for this. Be very careful, brothers and sisters, on this matter. Be ever so careful. This is the precious church of Jesus. Let's move on. Thirdly, God wants a rebirth. That is a new church. Verses 7 to 9. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I cause delivery? Shut up the womb, says your God. Here's here's the point. is that God doesn't abandon his church and yes through many dangers toils and snares we have already come but God does not abandon his church and this at 700 BC before Jesus came the prophecy that Christ would come Zion is in labor Zion is the Old Testament church and she will give birth to a male child this is Jesus Christ to come Why is this so significant? Well, we have to draw it back in Isaiah 65 as well. But Revelation 12 speaks of this woman who gives birth. Remember, the woman is persecuted by Rome. After after the woman gives birth to Jesus in Revelation 12, the woman is persecuted by Rome. What is that? That's the church. The church of the Old Testament gave birth to Jesus. The woman again is persecuted by Rome again. So, here we read that Zion, or Jerusalem, or Israel gives birth, but then we come to Luke chapter 2, and we find that Mary gives birth. So, which is it? Is Jerusalem giving birth, or is Mary giving birth? Which is it? Well, it's got to be that Mary is part of Israel. I believe she was a Jew. Wasn't she an Israelite, as I recall? Okay, well then, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That a a member of Israel gave birth to a male child. Indeed, this is it. But now there's an urgency to the matter, and you have to understand the urgency. And that is, the church without Jesus is nothing. We need Jesus. The church so needs Jesus, and and God recognizes that. This passage is 700 years before Jesus comes. There's an urgency to to, to the giving birth of Jesus Now, I don't know much about birth, but my understanding is that there's a point at which it gets urgent. 
Somebody told me that at some point you really do have to push. I mean, push. And there's an urgency. And, and this, I think, is what's being conveyed here is that the church is pregnant and the church has to give birth and, and the church is going to give birth to Jesus. And this is the new creation, again, spoken of in chapter 65. I create new heavens and new earth. The former shall not be remembered, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I recreate. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing. The new creation comes by a rebirth, a, a new people, a new humanity. The old creation failed in Adam, but now the new creation is the very Son of God and all those who are born unto Him. And so as the fullness of time had come, 700 years later, let's just read it from Luke chapter 2. This is it. This is the moment at which, you know, the world been waiting for 4,000 years for this moment. Luke 2 and verse 8, we have the angels showing up. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Amen. But who is this? It's the beginning of a new creation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That is the capability of passing on physical life to the children to be born. The, the, the first Adam was a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, a spirit that passes life on those who are, who are dead, new life and spiritual life and eternal life and a life that can never be done away with. Amen. Amen. And so the coming of Jesus is the rebirth of man. It's the new man. It's the new life that will never pass away. And then finally, God wants a rejoicing. He wants a trembling at his word. He, he, he wants justice, absolutely. He's committed to justice. We talked about that. He wanted a new, new rebirth, a, a birth of a new man, a new creation, a new church that would come through Jesus Christ. And then finally, he wants a rejoicing, a rejoicing church, verses 10 and 11. Rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad with her. All you who love her, rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. This is what God wants. Now again, I've been presenting this as four points of what God wants. He wants of us, those who are humble and contrite, and they tremble at his word. He wants justice, yes, but he wants the rebirth. And the rebirth comes through Jesus' birth, and, and Jesus is coming and establishing a, a new people and a new life that, that establishes in a church, but God wants the church to rejoice. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad with her. All you who love her, rejoice for joy with her. All you who mourn for her. So what is this? This is God's heart, God's desire, His envisioning, His, the thing He will bring about, the thing He has brought about. It's a source of spiritual life. The church itself becomes alive, teeming with life in us. When people come to the church, the first thing they realize is life. There's life. People are alive, spiritually alive. And life gives birth to new life. And it's, it multiplies and it grows around the world. And we find new life in every corner of this earth today. Life in the church is life that nurtures more life. It increases in life. It flows in life. 
An increase in what? Spiritual sensitivity to spiritual things. A spiritual power over sin. A recognition of that spiritual power. A sense of God's glory and the gloriousness of Christ. The coming alive to God. The coming alive to the love of God. The loving God and to love others. And, and just the realization of these things. They multiply in us and they flow and flow in the church of Jesus Christ. The world, of course, not impressed by the church. Worldly people have despised the church, abandoned the church, thrown spite on the church, slandered the church, persecuted the church, displaced the church with other distractions and ministries. That's happened over 2,000 years. But the church is God's project. Spoken of in First and Second Timothy. Spoken of in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Spoken of in the book of Revelation. This is God's project. This is God's plan. This is God's olive tree. This is God's vineyard. So has he failed in his church? Oh, no. He will not fail. He has not failed. Perhaps you mourn today over the church, but at the least... Rejoice, all those who mourn for the church. Rejoice for joy with her. Rejoice in God's intent. Rejoice in what God has already done. I'm spending almost half my life right now just reading what God has done in church history over 2,000 years. It's the most encouraging study I've ever done in my life. I'm so encouraged. I'm encouraged with what he's doing around the world. I'm encouraged by what he's done in history. Uh, Just look at God's church, study God's church, appreciate God's church, realize the glory of the church of God. And he intends to make the church a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. And realize, he says here, the abundance of her glory. You see that in verse 11? Realize the abundance of her glory. You see the gloriousness of what you see around you? Drink deeply of it, brothers and sisters. Take it in. Delight in the church of God. Rejoice in what He has done in each other. Rejoice in the church. You know, God rejoices over us. We talked about that last week. We sing because God sings. We rejoice because God rejoices. That's the contagious character of rejoicing is to shout and to sing and to rejoice. Zephaniah 3 again. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one. He will save you. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Can you hear him this morning? Can you hear his voice? Can you hear him rejoicing over his church? Can you hear him rejoicing over the redemption of his son? Can you hear him rejoicing over the rule of his son, over principalities and powers? Uh, the, the kingdom of righteousness that's coming to bear over the whole world. Can you rejoice in his plans? Can you rejoice in his purposes? Can you rejoice as God rejoices? Rejoicing is so contagious. Rejoice with the bridegroom as he runs out of his chamber. Rejoice as a bride counts down the last three days to the wedding. But mostly rejoice because God rejoices. And Jesus anticipates us as he receives us into glory with exceeding joy. There is such joy in anticipation as well. Perhaps not quite there to the wedding. I get it. But my understanding is most brides are pretty excited on 
the third day out, the second day out, there, there's a lot of build, you know, there's a lot of anticipation for this. And I believe that's part of what God is drawing us into in this passage, is to realize what He's about to do, that eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered into the mind of man. It will blow your mind what God has prepared for us who trust in Him and wait upon Him. So rejoice ahead of time. Rejoice now. Rejoice with anticipation for what God has done already, but what He's going to do. If He's done all this so far, what will He do in the end? Let me ask you that question. If He, if, if he has created a church of 2.4 billion people around the globe this day, what will heaven be like? What will heaven be like? If there's already shouts of joy and singing of rejoicing going on in, in churches all around the globe today, all the way up into Nepal, we've been very tiny little churches in the, in the hills of Nepal, we've been in churches down in Brazil or in Mexico, all over the world, and we have seen that the people are shouting great shouts of joy for the redemption that God has brought uh, to them. And we will continue this chorus on into eternity as well. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this vision you've laid out uh, for your church. God, we thank you that a child was born, a prince, a king was born. He is our king. He is our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. Father God, we thank you for the, the great revelation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the establishment of his church, and that we are the redeemed. We are the ones who have been loved. We are the ones that you've brought in to yourself, and you rejoice over us, you sing over us. Oh God, that we would tremble before you. Oh, that we rejoice before the cross. Oh, that we have a better sense of all of this. So God, our rejoicing is lacking because our trembling isn't quite there. Our understanding of the depths of your love, overwhelming your wrath and your justice at the cross. Our understanding of how big you are, God, in your love and your mercy. Oh, it's not where it should be. Oh, Father God, help us to understand, to stand before the cross and the open tomb and to know today what you have done you're doing, and to anticipate what you have yet to, to do. Father, overwhelm us today. Overwhelm us by your truth and your love. Oh God, that we rejoice, real rejoicing in the great things you've done and will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's now come to the Lord's table, come to fellowship, to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ at his table. And those of you visiting for the first time, Check the back of our bulletin for how we do the Lord's table here at the church. We ask that you would survey that before you participate. Um, let me start with this point that I left out uh, at the very end of the service sermon. And that is that the church is glorious. From Ephesians 5, we read that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The church is glorious, but you know what does this mean? What is it to, to be glorious? I want to look at that word just for a moment. I think we all know what it is not uh, to be glorious. The world around us is not glorious. Inglorious. It's full of broken relationships and 
sin and darkness and idolatry and deception and betrayal and treachery and depression and hopelessness and lovelessness and hatred and fighting and war and broken hearts and addiction to lusts and sick vanity of uh, human pride. There's oftentimes no forgiveness and just condemnation. So we know what something is when it's not glorious. You know, we, 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 we're familiar with that. Everybody knows the stuff that's not glorious. So what is it that is glorious? What, what is the gloriousness? Is it beauty? Power? Love? Mercy? Righteousness? Is it the object of love? Is it the glorious salvation or rescue, forgiveness of sin? It's all of these things. It's all of this. We talked about rescuing the fair maiden last week. But what if the fair maiden wasn't fair or didn't really want to be rescued? What about that? See, that would be interesting. That would add a little bit of a twist to the story, wouldn't it? Well, what if? Well, that's, that's it, isn't it? That the fair maiden wasn't fair and she didn't want to be rescued. And yet, she's been rescued and what's, what else is happening? Jesus is making her fair. That's what's happening. He rescued her. He's making her fair. He's rescued his maiden from the dragon. And he's making her fair and glorious by the washing of the water and the word. So that's the story. That's what's going on with us. And so we need to see this. We need to see the glory and the power in the sanctuary. Amen? Just to see it. Everybody want to see something glorious. And walking away from the service this morning and say, that was glorious. What was glorious? I don't know. The coming together of God's people in the same place and everything involved in that. That's the, 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 the glorious thing. It's, the church is the glorious place Because it's a place of redemption. God is redeeming us from what? From all this deception and sin and darkness, idolatry and treachery and depression and hopelessness and lovelessness and hatred and fighting and where there's no forgiveness and broken hearts and all that lust. And God is saving us from all of that. Hallelujah. This is a redemption going on right now. Amen. And I think that's it. What what is the most glorious thing about us. We have been redeemed and restored. It's the restoration. That's the word, I think. What is it about me? What's about you, George, and the rest of us? We're being restored and redeemed. God's doing an amazing work in us. He's restored light and truth where we used to believe deception and darkness. He's restored relationships where we had all these broken relationships due to what? Our sin and our self-centeredness and idolatry. Okay, yeah, but he's restoring all of that piece by piece. He's restored love where there was no love. He's restored righteousness where there was no righteousness. Now, I think the most important thing to realize, it's done in the context of relationship. He restores two relationships. See, that's the other thing. So what is the most glorious thing about the church? Restoration to relationship. 
the church in relationship to Jesus. That's it. That's the glorious vision that God has brought to bear on his church here and all around the world. That's it. That's the vision. That's God's vision. That's what God's doing. Now, the most glorious and greatest human experience, as you know, is marriage. And I believe that's why the same word is used. So where is the gloriousness today? It's the unified experience, the sharing of the grace of Christ. It's us together being redeemed. It's us together being washed in the blood of Christ. It's us together being the subjects of God's love. All of us together experiencing God's love and forgiveness. You too? You too? What? You too? You as well? And then suddenly all our hands go up simultaneously. Let me say that one more time. God's love, God's forgiveness, I've received it. You too? You too? You too? You too? You too? And all of our hands go up all at once. That's it. That's it. It's the unified. Not just being unified around some esoteric issues or Unified in general, as just we just feel like we're all unified. No, unified under the cross of Jesus Christ, eating the same body, drinking the same blood, being sanctified and cleansed from the inside out to become the glorious church of Jesus Christ without spot or wrinkle. That's it. And when you sense that you're part of it, and we're all together in it, receiving the body and the blood of Jesus together, then we're a unified bride prepared for the bridegroom. And that's what's happening here at this table. The process is continuing right now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh, the reconciliation, restoration that happens in the relationship that we have in Jesus Father God, we're, we're trying to see it. All of us trying to make it out through a glass dimly. Trying to understand it. This is something big. It's glorious. It has an eternal significance to it. Father, help us to understand it better. To know your love together. To know your forgiveness together. To know we've been reconciled together. And, and thereby being the glorious church of Jesus, and to recognize it and rejoice in it. Father, this this is a meal we have in communion with Jesus. May we rejoice knowing who we are redeemed, but knowing who we're related to now in relationship, and that's Jesus. Father, bless this time by your Spirit. Open these truths up to us in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen.